I pay homage to the Buddha. I pay homage to the Dhamma. I pay homage to the Sangha. So today, there's a, a teacher that I want to discuss. Her name is Upasika Ki Nanayon, who was an extraordinary Thai Buddhist laywoman who became a teacher, a Dhamma teacher, in the early to mid-1900s. But before I can, I think, fully address her teachings, apologies for taking a drink of water, um, before I can fully address her teachings, I want to lay some groundwork first. So I want to bring attention to how I nearly always start my Dharma talks. Since I first started giving Dharma talks here, I'm not quite sure why I made that choice to do it, but I've always started with paying homage to the Triple Gem. Homage to the Buddha, homage to the Dhamma, homage to the Sangha. And I suppose that I decided to do that to keep in mind what it is that I'm trying to, to do when I take this seat and when I share the Dhamma, that I'm doing so as someone who is doing, res doing it respectfully to the Triple Gem, but also someone who has taken refuge in the Triple Gem. And so it's something that I say to myself to prepare myself mentally, and hopefully something too that, that people here who have also taken that same refuge can uh, reflect on, remind themselves too, why they are sitting here listening. Now the thing is, uh, the, chant, like the, the chant that's usually done for homage to the Triple Gem is much longer than what I do. In fact, what I've really done is just taken a very a simple single sentence from each one of those, just the part that's about paying respects, veneration to the Triple Gem, to the Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha. If I were to actually do the whole thing, I'd have to add an additional minute or two to every talk I would do. And people might wonder, like, all right, when is he going to get on with it? But I do love uh, Buddhist chanting in general. Here at the International Buddhist Meditation Center, we have the, the privilege, the honor of being able to chant from many different traditions. But the tradition that I enjoy the most, especially to chant from, is the Theravada tradition, chanting in Pali. And, it, you know, the chanting that, that's often done, it, you know, if, if we get a chance to hear it here at IBMC, which we do every once in a while, it's one of those things that is introduced to people and it might be brand new and they might think, oh, these words are pretty. It sounds nice. It kind of flows over. You can just get to hear the syllables, the sounds. And they might not carry any meaning if you uh, haven't studied Pali. And then you have those that do practice Theravada, who do chanting quite frequently. And all they've bothered to do is to memorize it phonetically. I know that early on for myself, that was the best I could do at first because I was going to these temples, participating in these communities, be they Sri Lankan, Thai, or whatever. And I just wanted to join along. I just wanted to be a part of it. Everyone was chanting these beautiful sounds, and I wanted to do it too. So I learned phonetically for a long time. And I could just say the words and didn't have a clue what I was saying. 
And then we have some people that maybe at one point they did learn the words, they did study, but then the problem with repetition like this is that you just get into the flow of saying it over and over and over again and then it loses all meaning. So let's single in on one of the aspects of the triple gem, the Dhamma, because that's why we're here. We're here to study the Dhamma. So the one little phrase that I take is just really just one one sentence of the entire chant. Tam ahang dhammang abhipujayami. Right? That's it. That translates to, I you know I pay my respect to the Dharma. I venerate the Dharma. I pay homage to the Dharma. That's what it means. Different ways of saying the same thing. That's all. That's all that it means. But the full thing, like most of our Buddhist chants, aren't just meant to be pretty words. Oftentimes they're very instructive. They tell us something about the, the, this practice that, that we're doing, this path that we're on. It instructs us in the ways of the Dharma. And this is also true of the full chant. I'm not going to do the full chant. I'm just going to do the one on the Dharma. So the way it goes is, Yoso Swakato Bhagavata Dhammo. Sanditiko Akaliko Ehipasiko Opanaiko Pachatam Vetitabo Vinyuhi Tamahang Dhammang Abhipujayami Tamahang Dhammang Sirasanamami. And what it means is, the Dharma well expounded by the Blessed One, by the Buddha. To be seen here and now, timeless, inviting one to come and see, pertinent. To be seen by the observant for themselves. To this Dharma, I venerate most highly. To this Dharma, I bow my head. That's the whole thing. And all I take from it that I say every time I give a talk is I pay homage to the Dharma. The rest of that gets completely lost. Only I know that I'm saying the whole thing when I say that phrase. But all of what I just said isn't just something that's just meant to be veneration. Like how, how super duper is the Dharma? In it, what we also see is various things that we can work on and develop as we practice the path. As much as the Dharma means the truth of things, it also means doctrine. It means teachings. And it's teachings that we put into practice. So let's look at some of the qualities we see in there. In fact, I'm going to go through all the qualities that I just said, one by one, but not in the order I said them. I'm going to go through them, beginning with the one that we talk about the most, which is ehipasiko. Come and see. Inviting one to come and see. And I'm starting with that one because I really think that when we talk about Dhamma or Dharma, what we really talk about is really like three kinds of, of Dharma, or rather three aspects of Dharma. There's the Dharma that we study. It's the Dharma that's the spoken word, the written word. It's the Dharma that we hear. It's the Dharma that we speak. It's the Dharma that we write down. It's the Dharma that we read. That's the learning part. The other two are experiential. It's the Dharma that we practice. It's the Dharma that we put into practice. And then the third aspect of Dharma is the Dharma that we realize 
the truth part that we come to, which is that there is an end to suffering, an end to stress, that there is a cessation and a release, freedom, that there's nibbana, nirvana, enlightenment. So any time we're talking about the learning part of the Dhamma, of the Dharma, that spoken word part, that written word part, the one we hear, the one we learn, the one we speak, that's the one that's inviting us. That's the one that's saying, come, come and see, come and see. It's an invitation. But it's not just an invitation to study a philosophy. It's not just an invitation to, to learn a few things, memorize a few things, have a list of knowledge in your mind. The Dhamma, because it's dealing with stress and suffering, because the Buddha said he taught two things. He taught suffering and the end of suffering. What we're invited to see, ehipasiko, to come and see, is what's going on inside ourselves. It's to see what's happening in our hearts, in our minds. This is where we're coming to see. This is what we're experiencing. In fact, one of the other words that we find in this, this chant is the word uh, opanaiko, which uh, I've translated as, as pertinent because that's one, one of the ways it's translated in the, say, the Dhamma Yud order. But opanaiko in Pali has this sense of, of drawing near. And it's a multifaceted term, especially when we apply it to the Dharma. Because we're not just drawing near to the Dharma, we're drawing near to our own hearts and through our hearts perceiving another dimension, a dimension free from greed, free from aversion, free from delusion. We're drawing near to the deathless, near awakening. So pertinent in that sense that it's pointing us in a direction. When we talk about someone who's had a glimpse of the deathless, had some sense of awakening, we call it as someone who's entered the stream. They're being directed down the stream at that point. There's momentum happening. And so they're being drawn in. Opanaiko. And since we're being drawn into our, our hearts and minds, since we're being drawn into that, that view of ourselves inside, really getting to know ourselves, investigate ourselves, understand ourselves, and cultivate ourselves, the skillful qualities we have within, we're also brought to that first thing, which is to see here and now, to be seen here and now. Sanditiko, right? And then that's paired with another word right after that seems to contradict itself. We're told that the Dhamma is something to be seen here and now, but then we're also told that the we're also being told that the Dhamma is akaliko, timeless. So how can something be seen here and now and yet also timeless? The Dhamma is timeless because of its very universality, because it applies to every single one of us all throughout human history, from the dawn of any kind of perceivable, measurable time, all the way to the very end when all beings are just gone, right? The truth remains the same. In that sense, it is timeless. The teachings of the Buddha are timeless in that they relate to not only the Buddha and his disciples within his own lifetime, but it's related to everyone since then, relates to us now, because our nature is the same. We have the nature to be born, to grow old, to get sick, to die. We have the nature to experience suffering and stress, of the nature to feel sorrow and lamentation, 
but we are also of the nature to cultivate and question and be curious and find an escape out, to find an escape to greed, aversion, delusion. We have all of that going inside of us, all that potential within us that exists for everybody. But it's here and now because that's what we have to work with. Because anything that we do inside ourselves, within our own hearts, always happens here and now, wherever it is that we are. It's true that we are a product, karmically, of our past, but also our present. And it means that any karmic work that we're going to do happens right here and right now, in the present. It's what we've got to work with. I find it pretty funny that my, my teacher laughs at the whole concept that everyone thinks like the power of the present moment, like the moment itself is, is special, that there's something magical about, about the present moment. And he says it's really not the moment itself, it's the fact that that's where you are right now. It's where your actions are, are taking place, and that's why it's important to focus on the present moment. So the other quality that I'll talk about is the last one, to be seen by the observant for themselves. And this also highlights another aspect of the Dhamma, which is that because it's this oddly universal thing, but also this very subjective thing, that it's the thing that we have to do for ourselves, to be seen for ourselves. It's the work that we do. Oftentimes when this is brought up in teachings, it's highlighting how the Buddha cannot enlighten you just by him being the Buddha. And no teacher, no admirable friend, no one else that you have on the path can do the work for you. You know, it's not the case, like we hear in some stories where someone has magic powers, they can just rest their hand on you and you're healed. You know, we have stories of that happening physically, but in this sense, it'd be a kind of a, a, a spiritual or mental healing. Someone can place their hands on you and you're just all better. It doesn't work that way. The Dharma in inviting us to look within means we have that work to do. So the whole reason I'm bringing this up in the first place, talking about all these various qualities, is because I was reading this book that is a translation of many teachings by this, this Thai Dharma teacher, this, this woman who is really, her story is quite extraordinary. And as I was reading, she talked about one particular phrase that in the translation was kept in Pali, and I saw it and I was like, oh yeah, I really don't think about that word too much. And the word was, was pachatam, one of the words that I said as I was chanting or rather reciting the chanting, which is that aspect of, of the individual, the part that I translated as, you know, observing for themselves, the of themselves part. It is a reminder that what we're really becoming intimate with when we study the Dhamma is our own hearts. Now, all of the stuff that I said can sound like something philosophical, words to think about, concepts to learn, things to memorize, but again, if we think about what ehipasiko means, what we think about what the implication is, it's always wondering what's happening in here. We're all on our own journeys. We've all had our own experiences, our own karma that's brought us right here. So let me now tell you about upasika ki nanayon. Now that I've 
laid this groundwork. And you'll see why I brought all this stuff up. So, Ki Nanayun was a woman born in Thailand in 1901. And she, like many people, sort of inherited the work that her family did. You know, her father was, uh, was a shopkeeper, and so she helped around the shop, and she herself was a shopkeeper. But her mother was a very devout Buddhist. And so from a young age, she learned the rudimentary aspects of, of Dharma from her mom. Her mom taught her how to meditate, how to chant, how to light incense, all that stuff. Learned the, the rudiments of it. But as she, she grew up and was continuing to help out with the shop and live this you know, somewhat conventional, normal life, she continued to study on her own. She read Dharma books, various Dharma talks that had been transcribed and written down, and she continued to meditate on her own. And really, that's the impressive part. Many people expect that any good Dharma teachers had like at least a lineage of teachers to show them away, you know, show them the way, or have some direct discipleship with a particular person. And this is someone that, uh, quite unexpectedly, later on became very renowned, really just studying on her own quite a bit doing a lot of reading, doing a lot of meditation. And at first, she had no aspirations of doing anything really all that different with her life. She thought that she was just going to work in the shop and spend her time there and save up enough money maybe just to, you know, live out the rest of her life, life peacefully, just having enough money to have her needs met and just really just be kind of a run-of-the-mill person. But big events happened, you know. She you know, she was living in Thailand, in, you know, right around both great wars. She would have been alive during World War I and then World War II. And sure enough, it's after, right after World War II, she decided to change her life. At that point in Thailand, things were starting to settle down, go back to normal after this big shift in everyone's lives. And at that point, she was running the shop all on her own. And she turned the running of the shop over to her sister and let her sister handle all that stuff. She's like, I don't want to do this anymore. You handle the business. I'm going to go off somewhere else. She happened to have an aunt and uncle who were also uh, very, very deeply interested in, in Buddhist practice and really cultivating and not really interested in living the conventional lay, lay life. And so they happened to have a home um, in somewhat remote region of Thailand where there was this big mountain. I think it's uh, called like Royal Park Mountain, something like that. And her aunt and uncle, what they had managed to do is find uh, an abandoned monastic setup. It was basically like a, like a little monastery that they had found that at some point monks had lived there and left and abandoned the monastery. And they decided to go live there and turn it into a refuge. And it was tough because there, we're talking about three lay people who had whatever money they had saved up for this endeavor and no, no support because they're living as lay people. They took on the, the moniker named for themselves, Upasaka and Upasika. They were lay people. These were not ordained people. But they were going to go off into the woods and practice. They were going to live a life of austerity. And so they had no support, obviously. So they had to fend for themselves. They had to make bowls out of coconut shells. They had to mend their own clothing. They had to find food when there wasn't enough food and go off into the forest, find bamboo and eat the, the delicate, tender parts that they could cook, and so on. And they continued during this time to practice, to practice in the three aspects. They were practicing their virtue, they were practicing their concentration, they were practicing their discernment. 
And over time, word spread that, you know, there are these like three crazy people living in the woods meditating. That sounds weird, right? And people went to go check and see it for themselves. And then they got into conversations with Ki Nanayon and were quite impressed with this Upasika. And so more word spread around. And after a time, people came to practice alongside her, many of them women. And some of them at that point were already ordained Buddhist nuns in uh, the Ten Precepts, which was the common practice of the time in Thailand. So these are white-clad women who take on Ten Precepts, and they're they are then Ten Precept nuns. And they went to go practice and study with this woman, who herself was an Eight Preceptor, Upasika. She was not ordained. And they went to go learn from her and practice with her. And over time, they, can, they started to get more and more support. And this turned into a fully functioning meditation center that exists even today. You know, you can actually find it on Google Maps, you know, go figure. Like Royal, Royal Park Mountain Meditation Center, something like that, and, you know, but it's all in Thai. And there's still a community of people who, who go there to practice. And she, you know, to her credit, helped create this community was in charge of it, led it, was the guide, was the teacher until about 1978 and 1979 when she passed away. After, after she passed away, her sister decided to retire from the business and go live her, there herself, and she took over the community for a while until she eventually passed away in the 1990s, I think 1993. And other people had to pick up the slack, lead the group, and it continues. How amazing. How amazing that someone would dedicate their life in such a way and come to such profound uh, lessons, which I'll share with you in a moment, without having gone through the conventional way. Truly, she only had the Dhamma, the Dharma, to rely on by actually putting it into practice. She did a little bit of that first part I was talking about. She did that study part. She listened to the Dharma when she could, but most of the time she read the Dharma. So she got that learning part. What she really had to rely on was the, those two other parts. She had to put it all into practice. She had to really live it and experiment and work with her defilements on her own through a lot of meditation, through a lot of cultivation. And then whatever realization she attained, and there are different stories to say how much exactly, but whatever attainments that she had were her realization through what she had done in her practice of the Eightfold Path. Someone like that I find very inspiring because they're an example. You know, throughout time we have various admirable friends, those that are act actively in our lives that act as Dharma brothers and sisters, mentors in the path that help us cultivate. But then we also have these people in history that inspire us to work and strive even harder, to really want to, to make something of this, this, this life that we've got. Because even if we take the grander scope that Buddhism might offer us in terms of, of live, lifetimes that we might have, we have this moment right here. We have to practice the Dhamma not in the sense that we have all the time in the world, but we have to practice it in the sense that what we have is here and now. And that's what someone like her inspires me to do. Now, everything that I just said, she managed to convey in like a couple paragraphs. Fantastic. Amazing. And that's what I'm going to share with you now. Everything I just said about the Dhamma, everything that I recounted in the, the Pali chant on the Dhamma, all these aspects of it being 
Akaliko, Ehipasiko, Opanayiko, all of that, she manages to convey in a way that brings to our minds its immediacy. Now, I will say that she tends to talk about those who are intelligent in the same way that I talked about those that are observant, which is another way of saying those that are wise. In fact, the Pali word binyu, which is the binyuhi part of the chant, refers to those who are wise. But we can say that it's someone who is discerning, has the ability to look around and have a sense of what's going on in themselves. So now I'll share this and keep in mind all the things that I've said about the Dhamma because she brings it to light so beautifully. Only intelligent people, though, will be able to stick with the practice. Foolish people won't want to bother. They'd much rather follow the defilements than burn them away. To practice the Dhamma, you need a certain basic level of intelligence. Enough to have seen at least something of the stress and suffering that come from defilement. Only then can you practice progress. And no matter how difficult it gets, you'll have to keep practicing on to the end. This practice isn't something you do from time to time, you know. You have to keep at it continuously throughout life. Even if it involves so much physical pain or mental anguish that tears are bathing your cheeks, you have to keep with the holy life because you're playing for real. If you don't follow the holy life, you'll get trapped in suffering. So you have to learn your lessons from pain. Try to contemplate until you can understand it and let it go, and you'll, and you'll gain one of life's greatest rewards. Don't think that you were born to gain this or that level of comfort. You were born to study pain and the causes of pain and to follow the practice that frees you from pain. This is the most important thing there is. Everything else is trivial and unimportant. All that's important lies with the practice. You know, of course, we're, we're reading the words of someone who had made great sacrifices to live the life that she was living. We can even get a sense of what kind of pain that she's referring to. To have lived in the woods with only her aunt and uncle as company, and most of the time spending time quite a bit of part to, to practice meditation. To live in the woods, to make use with whatever tools that you have, just so that you can dedicate most of your time to meditation, to concentration. That's what she was doing. And the images that she uses are quite evocative. They might even sound foreign to us in the West that someone would, would say that, like, practice, no matter how hard it might feel sometimes, even if your, your cheeks are stained with tears. But, you know, even the Buddha talked about cultivating this way, developing this way, in terms of how important it was to find release, to find freedom from stress and pain, from stress and suffering. He said that if the path was like being stabbed with spears every day for like a hundred years or something like that, by the time that you had finally found release, by the time you had find, found liberation, Nibbana, true freedom, you wouldn't have looked at that time as time wasted. You wouldn't, have, you wouldn't look back 
at that time spent every day being stabbed with spears as uh, somehow being wasteful. You wouldn't have regret about it. Now, luckily, the path doesn't usually work that way. I spent a lot of time last week talking about how the Buddha, when he was still developing as a bodhisattva, spent a lot of time in austerities, spent a lot of time struggling and suffering and realizing that the path didn't need to be that way. So I really think that what Upasika Kinanayon is talking about is not that necessarily things get that bad, but that we should be dedicated enough that we keep practicing even if it does. Why it becomes important to me to, ref to reflect on it that way is because I've seen in my own life how there were times when I was very dedicated to the practice when I was younger and times when I wasn't so dedicated. And it often seemed to fluctuate based on how comfortable my life was. There were times when my comfort in my life would be such a, in such a way that I had plenty of other things to do with my time. I didn't really want to practice so much. Or I wanted to be distracted from how stressful life was and I didn't want to sit with what was. And there were other times too when I went through um, times of, of severe dedication to the point of, of my detriment where I let other parts of my life sort of crumble away in maybe unskillful ways. And so there was this, this balancing act I had to do to find the right amount of dedication, knowing how much to practice and how to make it constant in such a way that it actually is comfortable. Because there is this other aspect of the timelessness that I was talking about. You know, there's the sense of this big dharma that we have that it itself is timeless because it's universal. But there's also the time, timelessness that comes from realizing that this path isn't something, like Upasika Ki Nanion says, that we practice here and there, this moment, that moment, but something that we make continuous in our lives. Something that we focus on all the time and then that's how we make it timeless. That's how we make it something that exists in every moment. So, a deep talk today, but I'm hoping that it has that quality that I was referring to before in the first aspect of the Dharma. And that sense of what we're learning and what we're hearing is something that's an invitation. Ehi pasiko, come and see. But not come and see, you know, me or anyone else or the words that we have to share, but using those in the direction that they're pointing to, which is in here. Because we all come to this practice for various reasons. The reason why Upasika Ki Nanion references intelligence is because she's saying that we all have to have enough self-awareness to realize that we're suffering in some way. And we come to the practice because we don't want to suffer anymore. That's why we come to it. And recognizing that other aspect, Opanayiko, is that it, that's what it points to. It points to our own innate ability to free ourselves from our stress and from our pain. Everything that we do and everything that we hear, everything that we say, everything, everything about this path has that as its flavor. The Buddha said as much, that everything that he taught had the flavor of release, had the flavor of freedom. So that's what we're after. And we, we shouldn't take any less these days, it's quite common to stop talking about the Dhamma as something that leads to liberation and to pare it down to something that just makes us feel a little better. You know, but a lot of things make us feel a little better. You know, on the right day, nachos make me feel a little better. You know, 
sitting and watching Netflix makes me feel a little better. In this path, we're after so much more than that. And so it's worth keeping in mind. And that's what I wanted to share with you all today. So I'll stop there.